Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, and freedom, and everything else in between, with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. everyone today is friday january 14th 2022 and this is the pinelander podcast i'm here with my ranger buddy mike blackburn uh, and we are coming to you from an undisclosed location deep within pineland today we have a special every time we have a special uh, but we're going to be joined by a barrel-chested freedom fighter a man who's been there done that who is one heck of a model american uh, Jonathan Owen, and he's also one of our authors with Blacksmith Publishing. He's the author of, uh, I think, two or three books. The book he has with us is called Hashtag Fail, Why the U.S. Lost the War in Afghanistan. And uh, Joe, I just want to introduce you and welcome you to the podcast. Well, thanks, uh, Paul. Thanks, Mike. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate the intro. Uh, I was going to say nerd, but <laughs> you know, knife fighter there in the trenches works too, I guess. So we'll go with it. We're just a warrior poets. That's what we like yes. to call ourselves, warrior poets. We can give it to you either way, man. You can give it to it in a book form or uh, at the end of the bayonet, whichever, whichever way you want it. <laughs> yeah, man. Fighting it uh, intellectually and, uh, and physically. Yeah, and uh, we're excited. Um, to talk about your book, but also in light of current events. Uh, obviously, every one of our readers, I think, unless they lived under a rock for the last 10 years, uh, they would had a front row seat uh, to watch uh, the travesty unfold where we had um, the current administration take a nosedive with the strategy in, in Afghanistan. I don't know if I can even call it a strategy, uh, but uh, 20 years in Afghanistan coming to an end, and the way it did, uh, tragic, uh, with uh, Afghanis falling off of aircraft, uh, people, uh, pandemonium of the loss of life uh, that didn't seem to be necessary in a, just a, a sleep-at-the-wheel attempt uh, at getting out of there. Uh, I mean... I don't think there's anything good about what happened, how we left Afghanistan. Um, but the reason why that uh, I'm excited about talking about this today is uh, this is a man who can bring to light a lot of the failed policies that we had in Afghanistan. So I'm excited to have uh, Joe. He also goes by Joe, for those of you who know him that way. And uh, But Joe, I wanted to have, just to kick things off, uh, and I brought up Afghanistan and why that was uh, deplorable failure uh, after 20 years. Now, we did a lot of good things there. I don't want to speak bad about uh, the men and women that died over there. Uh, we lost a lot of blood and treasure. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to ask you is, have we, uh, do we really know what, what, what went wrong there? Well, and see, I mean, starting this conversation kind of in reverse where, you know, where it ended, is, is probably pretty good because where it started is honestly uh, a lot of hate and discontent because, you know, when you come out, you know, early in the war and back, you know, the, the first five to 10 years of our adventure in Afghanistan and you, you put down on paper some real hard analytical evidence to say, you know, when coupled with actual firsthand experience there in Afghanistan and say, hey, you know, look, folks, this this isn't working. It's obvious it's not working. Uh, it's not going to work. Here's why. And here's what you can do to fix it. And we need to do it now or you get to end like we did. Yeah. Um, it's easy, you know, to look back in hindsight and say, yeah, you know, this was inevitable or we're going to lose. But at the time, you know, that was, uh, you know, high heresy. You know, that was you're, you're coming out and speaking against the powers that be. 
and saying they don't know what they're talking about. And the truth is, is they didn't. And the proof now is the proof. We look how it ended. And so it's a lot easier to come uh, kind of reverse into this book and say, yeah, you know, you have a title, you know, that says hashtag fail. Why the U.S. lost the war in Afghanistan? The draft for this book was really the, the research was done in 2007 and 2008. It was written in 2009, and the first edition was published in 2010. So we're over a decade ahead of time saying that, you know, it's and again, it's not like a, a hip shoot saying, hey, look, this is going back to lose. This actually goes and articulates the mechanisms. Why? And it just doesn't sit there. It's easy to say things are going to go wrong, but it's a lot tougher to say how to fix it. And yeah. um, I did a lot of you know due diligence to try to get there. And so here we sit, you know, 20 years later uh, with a failed strategy, a foreign policy disaster. Um, I'm trying to avoid using the word tragedy because that would imply that this was unavoidable. It was, you know, not foreseen. It was just a horrible accident. This wasn't an accident. Yeah. What we had here was intentional dereliction, gross incompetence to the most senior echelons of our government. Uh, you know, I could go on, but there's been zero accountability for 20 years. I mean, we literally have put generals or, well, we've put stars on collars of officers that have failed and then promoted them and promoted them for continuing to fail. Uh, I think we all can say at the tactical level, at the company level, you know, win, lose or draw, you know, we suffer the consequences personally. You get into a firefight and you lose, you die. That's that's the consequence. So it's pretty self-correcting right away. You might get lucky. Uh, unfortunately, maybe some of your buddies didn't, you know. And uh, it, it, it's a serious game. But you move out of that to the operational and strategic level. Suddenly, there's no consequences for failure. In fact, you know, I'll go and, uh, you know, start hitting home right now and, uh, and go after General Mattis. You know, I'm sorry, you lost the damn war as a CENTCOM commander. You're the combatant commander, dude. You had no business moving to the, the SECDEF position. You know, you couldn't win a war. Like, that's your job. My job as a company commander is win the battle you know, or at least the fight. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was I was held responsible for that. Why aren't you? I do, I don't get promoted for losing battles, and you sure as hell shouldn't be promoted to the most senior ranks and echelons politically or militarily uh, with the military when uh, you you aren't winning and you haven't shown any you know decisive gains. It's garbage, and uh, there's been a whole lot of smoke and mirrors. Yeah. There's been a whole lot of rhetoric. There's been a whole lot of money moving around self-aggrandizing, egos, you name it. But there hasn't been a whole bunch of winning wars. I was talking to a neighbor buddy of mine back in Appalachia here just uh, here a little while ago uh, doing harvest, digging potatoes. And he was asking me about the Marines and um, what I thought. And I, I looked at him. I said, you know, his name's Steve. He's a good buddy of mine. I said, Steve, I wish, you know, looking back that just once in my lifetime, we won a damn war. I was like, it's embarrassing. I was like, I don't know how we talk about dealing with Iran or, or you know, Russia or China or any other adversary that actually has some real capability when we were strategically whipped by the Taliban. The the intellectual leap to go from a trillion dollar military to getting strategically sodomized by the the Afghan Taliban is uh, a it's hard for anybody that their brains that are functioning to sit there and say that that was a predetermined outcome and that that was the toughest enemy the United States has faced in its history. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. That was that uh, the Taliban eclipsed Nazi Germany, the Japanese Empire, the British Empire. I mean, where do we start? I mean, if anything, they're probably the lowest common denominator when it came to a military threat. Yeah. And yet we couldn't put it together. And it leads you to a lot of dark places when you start asking those hard questions. Why? But at minimum, it's incompetence. It really is. And this so, book drives to the point of it. Yeah. And uh, you, you broach a great topic there. And, and that's one is one. One thing I want to ask you is, did we ever have a actual concise strategy? Well, it's uh, funny that you mention it. So when it comes to strategy, um, I, I won't throw the specific you know folks or units or where I was at under the bus. But let's just say I was talking to a group of uh, respected, well-trained uh, military members. And there were a cadre of folks that, uh, whether senior enlisted or officers, should know. And I asked that very question. I said, what's our strategy? And for a room full of uh, military personnel, I got a room full of answers. And that should tell you something right there. They were all divergent. Uh, I could, I guess, summarize that and say, if you take 10 general officers and poll them independently and say, what was our strategy in Afghanistan? 
pretty much willing to bet my paycheck, you're going to get 10 separate independent answers. Yeah. And that's a problem. And that, you know, when you look down, it's like, you know, so how did you get here? How did you realize there was a problem with our strategy? Well, that would be, you know, kind of what I consider symptomatic right off the bat. You know, you have a trillion dollar military, you know, they're not able to swiftly and decisively beat the Taliban. They never had a clearly articulated strategy. You know, we know, you know, we were taking a conventional fight um, and trying to manipulate our military to fight on unconventional terms instead of making the unconventional folks fight on our terms, which, you know, it's, it's really turning that on its head. Um, we never really got to the point where, you know, as of the writing of the book, which, you know, even then was a decade ago, we, we never got to force any type of decisive engagement or action. Uh, you know, of course, there's a ton of fraud, waste and abuse, you know, that was allowed to run rampant and unchecked. I mean, like, so you start looking down the list and you realize that there's there's a lot of problems and coin is, you know, how our, our strategy or lack thereof was one of them. But it, like you look, we started out, we had what was it, SFA, the security force assistance went in there. We're going to arm train and equip. You know, unfortunately, none of the intellectuals and academics ever did you know their homework and, and came back and said, hey, guys, there's actually no correlation with arming, training, and equipping a, a an insurgent or a counterinsurgent force with success, it just there's no correlation. Actually, the only thing it really correlates well with is actually losing, which should have been a red flag. Yeah. Nobody nobody brought that up. And then I think what do we had we had smart power, right? Government in a box, <laughs> ink blots, yeah. contracted out. I mean, like you know, we were all over the map. Hey, so Joe, uh, on that note, uh, I know most of the uh, veterans. Uh, that have been to Afghanistan, they, there's uh, the normal uh, pattern of awards that we throw out, and that is uh, after 01, 01 went great. You know, we toppled the Taliban. It took a couple of weeks, if I, if I remember. Uh, but then uh, we switched strategies, and then we actually brought in uh, the conventional army, and, and you kind of highlighted on that, and that's kind of when we adopted uh, a more of a conventional army approach. Well, the conventional strategy, which, yeah. of course, the reason why you couldn't get a straight answer from anybody is because they couldn't, you know, they weren't going to be honest with you. The strategy yeah. for most of us that have served in Afghanistan, you know, if you were to ask me and I was to be honest, I would have to say was to make money. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a whole can of worms that uh, when we open – when we, especially when we talk about the first year in Afghanistan, or really the first few months, um, it really it touches a nerve with a lot of people for a lot of different reasons, good and bad. Um, you mentioned how we came into it in an unconventional sense. So you know, the CIA led you know the invasion of Afghanistan yeah. for the second time. <laughs> you know, yeah. we skipped past exactly. the whole endeavor. <laughs> so you know, this was known terrain. These were known forces. I mean, like so, like if anybody should have known what they were dealing with, it should have been the CIA. And I, I'm going to piss some people off here, but it's okay. It's just we, it's tough love. You know, I I I, I, <laughs> I got love for you, brothers, but. There, there's some there's some hardship here that it, it comes out to these lessons. So what did we go into Afghanistan for, really, was AQ. Yeah. You know, so right there is a big problem. We got in a war with somebody we didn't even go to, you know, intend to go to war with. The problem was al-Qaeda and its lieutenants, its leadership. And we're talking of a cadre of less than really 100 people. It was a small, small contingent, which I would argue the intelligence community, the special operations community was well-suited to just take care of and leave it at that, you know, and none of this would have ever happened. But kind of back to what you say, you know, where would all these, you know, authorities and power grabs and money and, you know, where would the, the Patriot Act and where would this come from and the domestic surveillance? And, you know, it just never ends. You know, they would have never got that out of it if you just quietly said, OK, well, we'll find these guys. They'll pop up on the radar. We don't need to tip our hand. And when they do, we're going to roll them up or eliminate them. End of story. And, uh, and that's something that, uh, like a perennial problem, I think, for uh, the U.S. warfighting is we try to impose our Western style of government in, uh, well, into, into areas like Afghanistan, which are medieval. It's not going to take. Even if it I don't think a lot of people realize that there was a mural of, of George uh, Floyd in Kabul. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, that, that should tell you something. Yep. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the flip side of that coin is I entered areas of Afghanistan out in especially Konar province early on. You know, we're talking early 2003 um, where, you know, the only thing they knew to do was talk to me or speak to me in Russian. 
they thought we were the Russians had reinvaded. They were that detached from what was going on, which ought to tell you they really weren't interested in invading the United States or coming here to cause problems. They were more worried about probably starving to death or the next meal or the poppies harvest or whatever. Exactly. But the United yeah. States was just not on the radar until we literally showed up there. But, you know, back to what we were saying about the, how this war got rolling, you know, so the CIA goes in there. You know, the Taliban had mass conventional formations, which made juicy targets for, you know, things like B-52s. And, uh, and we made short work of them, you know, some you know, forward air controllers, some guys with some guts and grit, you know, got out there and, and cleaned house on them, except that really weren't the bad guys per se. You know, so then we get down to what was it, Tora Bor in December. And we have this pocket, which the CIA should have known well, because the cave complexes they helped fund and develop during the Mujahideen days, the Soviets. Uh, so they were relatively familiar to intimately familiar with what they had going on there. But and this is where I'll probably piss off a lot of soft folks. We and what we I mean, the unconventional CIA covert side, you know, was hell bent on what I would consider glory seeking and saying we want this war ourselves and we didn't need the conventional forces. And I'll beat up the conventional forces here in a second. So so don't worry, it's coming. <laughs> but we got these guys surrounded and the decisions were made. The CIA had the lead. They had the authorities. That's who was in, you know, that was running the war. And we were going to win it with our Afghan uh, allies, our, you know, trained, you know, uh, I guess asymmetric warriors or whatever they want to call them. But, you know, we had uh, we had raised our army there and that was a major failure point right there. We shouldn't have trusted them. We didn't need to trust them. And, and you couldn't have trusted them. And honestly, it's not their fault. It's our fault. And we shouldn't have. And so what ended up happening? We allowed the senior leadership of Al Qaeda to escape into Pakistan, across the border, where we weren't going to go. And at right. that point, we lost the initiative and we lost the war. By, what, December, I don't know, 17th-ish, we lost the war. As soon as they slipped out, they lost the war. And then it became a conventional occupation, which was a, it was a slow-roll disaster, and it was always going to be. And so we can go beat up the conventional side on it. But at that point, the war effectively was over in Afghanistan in a quite literal sense. The literal people we went in there to go after were no longer in Afghanistan. But yet we played this game where it's like, well, if we sit in Afghanistan long enough, they'll come back. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> you know, like, no, they're not. Or It's like really it came down to the question, are you willing to invade Pakistan or a portion of Pakistan to go after them or not? If the answer is yes, then okay, you know, that comes with consequences too, but let's go. You know, it's not like we didn't invade a sovereign country to start with, although it was, as you said, medieval. We did right. invade a sovereign country. And, and so, we didn't. Well, let, me, let me just, yeah. let me just uh, jump in here, uh, Joe. Um, having let these guys flee into Pakistan, at, at that point, would it have been smart just to pack our stuff up, go home, and just wait for another opportunity? I, I would argue, uh, with hindsight being 2020, absolutely. Um, it, what would have been the difference between a small contingent of soft sitting there working uh, and paying off the local warlords uh, to set up, you know, like in Jalalabad or maybe some undisclosed location, you know, uh, you know, command centers that are covert centers, but you know, they're they're operating with some degree of uh, sanction by the at least the local warlords. Um, and left it at that and worked with Pakistan through the ISI and, uh, you know, and honestly, without the ISI. <laughs> and I think and, that would have been easily, I think yeah. we could have easily, you know, called that a victory. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, we, we stomped the Taliban and sent them packing. It was a very clear cut, clean victory at that point, at least as far as the Taliban telling us to pound sand at that point. Um, we said no. And we made a very clear point. And then, yeah, we could have withdrawn at that point and said, hey, look, we took care of the Taliban. Afghanistan can do what it wants. It's not our problem. But we will still bring these individuals to justice and we will locate them and we'll do it in our time and place of choosing. But we're not going to get into a long drawn on occupation, which by our experience of the last decade of the Soviets, where we were backing the Mujahideen from Pakistan, we know that probably wasn't going to be a successful operation. Um, it if anything, it would have been a very expensive one, which it obviously turned out to be, and just capitalized on our network in Pakistan that we had developed and we had maintained and still was in existence, and honestly not ruined our reputation in the neighborhood, pulled out at that point and then left it really kind of where it was before back to what you're saying, the soft uh, in the Intel community 
working on honestly together to locate and uh, remove those individuals. Hey, so, I think we've been far, far ahead of the game, but hey, you Joe, wouldn't the sorry. fear. Act. Sorry, Joe. I just want to sneak in, sneak in there too. Hey, so one thing I remember, uh, I was over, over there that time. And uh, I remember uh, the U S and the army and you know, the war machine being on a, like a high that we were on. And then we just catapulted right into Iraq you know, uh, if I could just sneak this in here too, this is, I think, an integral part of it is, uh, you know, we haven't even finished business in Afghanistan and then we invade Iraq. Do you have any thoughts to that? And uh, did, was that indicative of where we were as a, not even having a strategy at the time? <laughs> Again, you talk about opening a can of worms. Um, yeah. there's, there's a problem with uh, kind of like an ADD-like strategy. Yeah. Uh, you need to finish the job you started. You know, and if you're not doing well, maybe you want to try to fix that before you go into something else. You know, if you're not doing well in investing, yeah. maybe, uh, don't take one and start investing in another area until you figure it out what you're doing wrong and why you're losing money yeah. in the first place. And you remember the Af- right after that, uh, Afghanistan, after the Iraq war started, Afghanistan kind of became like a backwater part of the theater of operations, if you remember that, of the GWAT. And then the there's, money was just flowing into Iraq. It's like, Afghanistan, what's that? There, that was the feeling that I remember. Yeah, and, I, and I think, you know, if, if memory serves me right, I mean, there's this whole sort of neocon, we're going to change the whole dynamic of the Middle East and that whole region to our liking. And yeah. I, th- I think there was a lot of, like, unrealistic pipe dreams going on. Well, these narratives definitely get hijacked for political purposes. And, you know, we can talk dark places and what led up to 9-11 and why and everything else. And, you know, the dereliction and the lack of opportunity or seizing of opportunities where we probably should have and could have prevented a lot of that. But let's just let's push the I believe button for now and say spilled milk. What happens at the senior echelon of the military when there's a new war? That's ego. That's my ability to make my stamp and make my mark and, you know, have my war. And so Afghanistan, as you said, became kind of a sideshow because the cool place to be suddenly became Iraq. That's, That's right. where they were going to make you know, their career. That's where they're going to write their books. That's where yeah. you know, they were going to get their, their time in the limelight. And so that suddenly became where all the cool guys went. And it, it was to the deficit of Afghanistan. Now, granted, they were all in the CENTCOM theater, but you know, and have we – fought wars in multiple theaters well i'd point to world war ii and say yeah absolutely we've done it we can do it we were supposedly organized to do it but i'll also point out like what's currently going on what happened to centcom after the the strategic focus moved to paycom and you know the pacific theater suddenly becomes the bigger problem all your analysts all you know your best planners all of those folks get siphoned off and they're gone now Looking at the results in both Iraq and Afghanistan, I, I don't know if, like, I use the term best planners and things like that loosely because we didn't win. Like, I mean, like, at the end of the story, we didn't win. Yeah. We didn't achieve any strategic, decisive gains that were, at least for the average American, positive. I mean, you look at the number of named, let's just say, Islamic terrorist groups today versus how many they were listed by the State Department in 2001. There's one word that comes to mind, exponential. That's the growth of those. And so if our plan was to exponentially increase the number of foreign terrorist organizations, our strategy was fantastic, was incredibly successful. If our strategy was to remove, eliminate, and diminish, you know, et cetera, et cetera, especially Islamic terrorism, it was an abysmal failure. If our mission was to secure the Middle East for U.S. interests, I would say it was also an abysmal failure. We took somebody that we'd worked with as an ally, like him or not, Saddam Hussein, for years and turned him into an enemy that then when removed, we had no plan to control that area. And, you know, we let basically loose all of the demons of the Middle East that a lot of these, quote, evil dictators, hindsight being 2020, had honestly kept in check. And, you know, now we've essentially replaced the Saddam Husseins of the world with our military force. I mean, I, I think we all can say that, you know, the U.S. military has done plenty of, you know, nighttime raids and kicked in doors and killed a lot of people. And I ask, who were we killing? And w- was that really that dramatically different 
then a lot of the same people these guys like Saddam Hussein were killing. And I'm not trying to do moral equivalence here. That's kind of beyond the scope. All I'm saying is from the perspective of the average Iraqi, there was just a lot of people being killed. And the only thing that changed is who was doing the killing. Um, and then, you know, Iran, we gave Iran the biggest gift ever. You know, if, if that was the biggest problem in the Middle East from a strategic policy perspective, what did we do? We, we jump-started them. Uh, you know, we brought them back into prominence. We gave them leverage, you know, and we effectively took out their biggest adversary, which was Iraq. Yeah. Now, you look at um, Osama bin Laden. I mean, like, actually, the guy was pretty clear about telling us what he was doing, why he was doing it. Uh, there's, you know, quite a lot of information now available. And originally, not so much. But uh, Mike Scheuer, you know, or the CIA, you know, he, I think, resigned in protest, went to Georgetown as a professor there for a while. Uh, you know, has written some good books. Um, you know, he's spoken quite a bit. And uh, he was the head of the bin Laden cell for quite some time. And, um, you know, he put together the primer on AQ and bin Laden. And I, and I recommend for everybody that hasn't read his book on uh, bin Laden to do so, because it's really eye opening. And if you look at the results of what happened and where we're at today, and you look at Osama bin Laden's strategy, like what he aspired to accomplish. He achieved it. He achieved it. We achieved it for him beyond his wildest dreams. And so, again, if anybody wants to argue strategically that this last 20 years has been a success, I I don't know what they're basing that on. They're going to have to really clearly articulate that because they've lost me. You know, we've spent trillions of dollars in treasure. We've lost hundreds of thousands of human beings, tens of thousands of dead and wounded Americans. You know, we've all but just absolutely shredded the Constitution and our civil liberties. The Bill of Rights is a, is relegated to antiquity, and it's just a historical piece of paper that people look at, but certainly is not respected anymore in, in a country that's supposed to respect the rule of law. Uh, these are all the results, the consequences, you know, the collateral damage of this war on terror. And now look, now the terrorists are domestic. This is the problem with these never-ending wars and this type of power and this police state and the surveillance. It's not conspiracy theory. This war has really come home. You know, when all of these people that spent 20 years chasing the Taliban or AQ or ISIS or whoever the flavor of the month was suddenly found themselves looking at unemployment, they had to find a new boogeyman. No longer the Soviets, so we got Islamic terrorists. Well, it's not Islamic terrorists anymore, so who is it? Now it's radical domestic extremists or whatever they call it. Do you see how they keep moving this bar? But the thing is, is this war has come home. These are the consequences that blood on your hands or it affects you generationally. And again, this is far beyond the scope of the book on border security and insurgency. But there's consequences to what really is unparalleled in U.S. history. 20 years of constant warfare. What does that do to a republic? What does it do to a democracy? Yeah. A constitutional hey, republic. Hey, Joe, I want to, before we go on to that, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, so for our, our listeners, if they don't know, uh, hashtag fail, uh, one of the points that Joe makes in the book is uh, an effective strategy for Afghanistan would have been uh, border control, uh, specifically uh, to eliminate the cross-border sanctuary of the Taliban. And, uh, and that's something that I think, uh, that's kind of a duh thing. Uh, you hinted at that earlier, uh, but the other thing I want to ask you too, if you can answer both of those if you want, uh, as far as the coin strategy, but would, um, we didn't talk about this, but VSO, Village Stability Operations, I don't know if you remember when that came out, and I'm just curious if you think if that could have been effective if we would have had, uh, I that think tied, been in, concert, right? yeah, tied, tied in, with in the with border, the border with the border yeah. security. Well, and it's it's a it's a fair question. I think that a lot of the stuff that we did to include the SFA, the fear the foreign internal defense, um, you know, going back to Vietnam where we had the you know the kind of village focused strategies where we did the embeds, uh, and even the arm training equip, uh, those things are complementary. But what's really really critical to understand is those are not decisive. Those do not change the game. They can amplify and enhance, but they're not critical. So when you're looking at prioritizing a mission plan or your strategy, these are, are complementary efforts that will enhance your overall success. It'll it'll improve the overall dynamic, but they never should take preeminence. They should never be the primary goal because it's it, it 
doesn't accomplish anything decisive. And when you get down to Afghanistan in particular, and we can talk later on in this, how this really applies to really any insurgency, but I know we had spoken in the past, if there was going to be a golden rule about insurgency, it comes down to sanctuary. And it goes something like this. If an insurgent is able to maintain, enjoy, if you may, sanctuary, as long as they have that, they're going to continue to be in the fight and or win. I mean, that's really the key of the insurgent is to just stick around. I mean, you really don't have to win anything. You just got to stay around. You cannot be eliminated as long as you well, can. Well, are expensive. You know, and that's that's what dogged the U.S., the Soviet Union, and every other, you know, especially in the case of a foreign occupier in history. It's expensive. Yes. It's expensive to maintain a force overseas indefinitely. And the insurgents know that. Yeah. And so when they're allowed to exist under the conditions that we permitted in Afghanistan, they could indefinitely endure. Uh, and that was always going to lead to a, a decisive defeat for the United States and NATO. Kind of like uh, uh, we have, we say, hey, uh, the Taliban said you have the, the watches, but we have the time. That's right. Yeah. Well, and see, and I, I had an answer to that because that's a, that's a very common statement. And it's true under the conditions that we created. But you can flip that on its head and stop the clock and have it work against the insurgent if on the other side of that coin, you deny them sanctuary or access to and from sanctuary. At that point, the whole dynamic changes and time is against them. Why? Because in the case, yeah, like we don't even have to say Afghanistan, but in a, a case where the insurgent is separated from its base of support, you have two groups. The group stuck in government occupied hostile territory that's running out of ammo and is the, the clock is basically running down where they surrender, they're killed or captured. And so they're done. Yeah, and that's something that uh, you bring out of your book. Uh, obviously, you you talk about that in uh, uh, pointedly in the Greek Civil War and in the Alge Al uh, Algerian War of Independence. Uh, you also mentioned Israel, but that's that's basically uh, the coin strategy that you think that we should have brought to bear uh, on Afghanistan. Is that is that correct? Well, if we were going to bring any strategy at all, it had to be central to that strategy. Yeah. Uh, the border security and denial of sanctuary you would is, is just absolutely essential. If you're not willing to do it, you should have never went in there in the first place because you can't win it otherwise. Well, let, let me let me just throw this at you, Joe. Um, you know, this is the argument you always get, and uh, for, you know, a lot of people over in Afghanistan. And I remember, I remember when you came out with your book. Okay, uh, the war was still. Roaring away. Yeah. And there was a lot of pushback, um, not only from higher echelon, but also just from the, you know, the knuckle draggers themselves that are over there taking pride in what they're doing uh, at that company, battalion level and below. Um, and really weren't wanting to accept the fact that there were some serious problems, some serious flaws in the grand strategy. And I remember reading the book and thinking, duh. I mean, it just made that much sense to me. But, but the naysayers were like, well, it's impossible to control the borders of Afghanistan. What do you, what do you say to those guys? <laughs> I love that you threw me a softball question. <laughs> uh, okay, let's start out with the, like, the duh part. So when I originally put this together, it was in my master's thesis. And I had to defend it against a Iran fellow, a, a genuinely good you know, gentleman, uh, that was genuinely – uh, involved in counterinsurgency, IW type academic research. And when I first began this uh, writing, I had to brief, you know, the kind of the trajectory and what my hypothesis, you know, the normal academic, uh, you know, rigmarole. And he looked at me and said, you're welcome to try that, Joe, but I don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. So fast forward a year later, and I'm defending my thesis with him. And I conclude you know, I've answered the questions. And he said, I got to tell you, Joe, he's like, when I came into this, I didn't believe it. He's like, but we missed it. It was right in front of us the whole time. And we missed it. Yeah. He's like, you're absolutely right. And uh, it's going to cost us if we don't change uh, the game right now. And, um, you know, so when you say duh, it really was staring us right in the face all along. And, and we can talk in detail kind of how we got here, why that was, you know, that was a blind spot for us. Uh, strategy and, and policymakers 
Uh, and, that, you know, again, it's not a, a one size fits all. There's not a single answer for why. There's, you know, a number of issues that, you know, culminated in us completely missing it. So that's the duh. Now, let me beat up the generals for a bit. So I briefed this. I briefed it to members of Congress. You know, it includes the Senate. It went up to ODNI. Like, there is a lot of very senior folks. It'll include the Commandant of the Marine Corps, who I personally gave and got his autograph when he got my book. Uh, so these folks had it. They read it. They understood it. Uh, and most of them agreed with it. But there was a whole bunch of ego and a whole bunch of, I like, honestly, spinelessness. Uh, where they recognized the problem, but they were unwilling, even though they were in a position of authority to change the game, did nothing, which is, I, I would say it's criminal personally, but it's inconscionable to me personally. Is that but, like, uh, you know, you've, I know you've seen the movie War Machine, uh, and, and that's kind of what I think, you know, I don't know that characterizes every general that went over there. I don't want to just... Well, and I hope it didn't. I truly don't. But I didn't see any generals really in mass resigning and saying that this yeah. is garbage. It's not going to work. Nobody put their careers on the line. They all were morally compromised by a pension. I got to tell you, like, if I was going to do one thing with the military and, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, this would probably piss a lot of people off again. But I think you understand why. If you become especially a senior level officer, you don't get a pension. You forfeit a pension for rank because you at that point, when you're collecting this cash, your eye becomes political. It gets focused on the pension and it compromises men's integrity. They will do so many things that are wrong knowingly so that they can quietly retire and get their paycheck. And how many times have we all heard it? Yeah, I don't give a shit, man. I know it's screwed. But I just, you know, I got three more years. I sit here, mark time, get my pension. Man, that is the wrong answer. It is wrong. And we see that at the highest levels now. Exactly. And I'm not talking about the PFC or, you know, the, the guy that did one tour and got out. This is for senior folks. Yeah. You know, there, there's, there's an exchange here where if you have that authority to make these big differences, the average sergeant, he's worried about the tactile. He's just got to get his team back. You know, but if you're a full bird colonel or you have a star on your collar, shoulder, wherever, uh, you know, you have a responsibility and not a like as far as I'm aware, none of the major senior leadership across the DOD ever stood up and A said, hey, look, this is wrong. This is why. And here's the high bar that actually requires some real integrity and actual intellect. Here's how to fix it. It never yeah. happened. It was always just some modification of status quo that got us eventually to bankrupt morally, financially militarily it was there so hey before I, I, people start hitting me up and saying well you dodged the question about securing the border let me go back to the generals yeah. i go in there and i brief this and as you said one of the first things well we can't secure a border but i start laughing i'm like general you've spent your entire you know billet period career whatever talking and leading and devising plans on how you're going to control an entire country in this case afghanistan how you're going to control all of afghanistan but yet you tell me you can't control the border so my question to you general is if you can't control a linear border how in the fuck are you going to control a country you can't it's a ridiculous the logic is completely flawed it's in the it, it's it's juvenile it's elementary level logic yeah. And these guys walked again and again with that same ridiculous notion. And then I asked them, I'm like, okay, you claim, let's, let's talk about Mattis, for example, you know, the warrior monk, a student of history. Well, let's talk about history. I happen to happen to agree that it's kind of history related. Archaeology was my undergrad and anthropology. So I studied a lot of history. There was this time period in our, our classical antiquity, you know, the Roman Empire. And they had this thing called Hadrian's Wall. They had this thing called the leams. You know, borders since the beginning of time have existed and they've worked and they've been built. So you mean to tell me that the Romans built Hadrian's Wall, you know, at the dawn of history, you know, to, to keep the wild men of Scotland and Wales out of, you know, the civilized lower what became England. And they were able to do that from afar. But we can't defend a border. Well, how about the People's Liberation Army? Let's go to a, a semi-contemporary example. We're talking the 1950s here. And they had this uh, problem with uh, a group in this place called Tibet, you know, so you had this Tibetan insurgency and guess where Tibet is, you know, you're basically in the Himalayan mountains. And the last time I checked the Himalayans were kind of like the highest, most rugged peaks in I don't know the world, yeah. you know, 
And so what happened? The PLA said enough of this, the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese, they marched 100,000 soldiers on foot with mules in the middle of the winter and in a season uh, completely secured that border, trapped the Tibetan insurgency in Nepal. And guess what happened? The insurgency ended. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. And you know, and they they existed on life support in Nepal until the political situation changed. Move you know forward in time to the Nixon administration, warming relations with the Chinese against the Soviets, and the Chinese you know had the backdoor discussion, say, hey, look, we kind of got this problem. We want to work with you against the Soviets. We're cool with that, but uh, you're going to have to stop supporting this insurgency with these Tibetan guys. Plug was pulled. The Nepalese army, you know, CIA left. Nepalese army, you know, rolled in there, wiped them out. That was it. The insurgency was over. What happened? What changed the game? The Chinese were actually plagued for years and couldn't get ahead, couldn't decisively defeat the Tibetans because they always were able to bleed back across the border. So they just sealed it. And that was decisive. You know, you look at uh, Algeria. The French military goes into Algeria and honestly learned a lot of hard lessons. There was a lot of bloodshed on all parts, but they were losing the fight. The fight had gone cross-border. And remember, insurgencies go cross-border not because they want to, but because they have to. And that's a really important thing to understand about the importance and the power of border security when you cut them off from that sanctuary. So the insurgency in Algeria, they they had to leave. They couldn't sustain inside of Algeria proper. So they bled across into Morocco and Tunisia primarily. And that's where they set up their bases of operation. They got massive aid, state support, weapons, training, everything, logistics, and they were all able to gain a lot of ground launch, you know, major attacks, you know, swell their numbers by the tens of thousands. And the French were up on the ropes. And then they got this idea, hey, we're going to build this in English, you call the Maurice Line, you know, and that initially started to be 200 miles along the Algerian Tunisian border. And then it was expanded to the Moroccan border. And guess what happened? All of those gains the insurgents made, they lost them like almost overnight. And because that physical barrier was there, they didn't have to, like the, the folks that were stuck in Algeria, the French were able to round up and, and wipe out. Those, they, they didn't have any more ammo. They had no ability to resist. So the clock again was against them. So they got rolled up. And then it was just the insurgents stuck in Tunisia and Morocco. And guess what happens? Remember what I was saying earlier about conventional versus unconventional? Suddenly this fight now becomes a conventional fight where the insurgent has to fight on the conventional military's terms and by that i mean they have a physical barrier that is the border that they must cross or they lose that is the conundrum that you need to put the insurgent into so just and, and this is you'll see it again and again in every case study but we'll, we'll continue to talk with algeria so the largest battles where the insurgents lost the most forces were on the border it may come as a surprise to people because you think of, you know, battle for Algiers and all that. You know, there's some serious fighting. But the insurgents lost the most by far on the border. And actually, contrary to Trinquier and a lot of these guys that, you know, articulated all kinds of theories on the, the conflict in Algeria, the, the troops out on the border weren't demoralized and bored and static. They were actually on the offensive. They were getting more combat than anybody else. Their morale was high and they were winning the war. And is sure, because that, that border was challenged quite a bit by the insurgents. It was, and uh, and they and every time they got crushed, they got crushed. You know, like I I'm so they weren't they the weren't just uh, doing uh, processing them and then doing a catch and release uh, into the uh, interior of Algeria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. So yeah, the, the insurgents had to get people and weapons and equipment across that border. If they hey, didn't, the insurgency was over. Hey, and Joe. Uh, in your, in one of your other chapters in your book, you mentioned uh, the same type of strategy that is applied to the Greek Civil War. And uh, if, if memory serves, uh, the border uh, between Greece and those uh, former uh, Soviet republics was actually pretty, pretty freaking long, uh, which is probably comparable to what with, uh, you know, the, the border with Pakistan. And so obviously, you know, that any, any argument would say, hey, uh, that isn't going to work well. It was already applied successfully in, in Greece also. Yeah, and again, this is where you're getting by, into a, by the US. You're exactly yeah. you're getting into a lot more of these more contemporary examples. And by contemporary, I mean in the last like hundred years of named insurgency. Yeah. And we can go right up to modern day as in today with examples. But you mentioned the distance and parallel. So yeah. the the Algerian borders uh, with Morocco and Tunisia are within 
roughly a hundred kilometers of the border, actually a little bit longer than the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Yeah. And that was effectively secured and go figure. It had a lot of rugged, you know, hot desert and it had a bunch of rugged mountains. Sound familiar? It should, because it's yeah. the exact same type of terrain in Afghanistan. Greece, Northern Greece is very mountainous. You had three borders. You had Albania, Yugoslavia in the middle and Bulgaria. Um, and it was also effectively secured. But Greece is an interesting uh, test case here because it actually wasn't even the uh, counterinsurgent, in this case, the Greek national forces that secured the border. Actually, the border was it was kind of a de facto accident. Uh, there was a rift between Stalin and Tito back during the Cold War when Yugoslavia existed. And the insurgents were communists and they had to basically pick a side. And in this case, I mean, you know, I, I'll guess hindsight 2020 again, they picked wrong. So they sided with the big Soviet Union and Stalin, which may have made sense at the time. But the problem was, is it alienated Tito? And he said, okay, cool. Well, you can't use Yugoslavia anymore. And he closed the border. And he said, anybody that comes in, we're going to disarm you and detain you. And he did. So they only lost actually one of the three border areas, but it was central. Yeah. And this and eliminated their ability to basically fall back and prevent decisive gains by the Greek national forces. And oh, by the way, back to where you're talking about these complementary efforts, it was also that point in time where the Greek national forces finally got their stuff together and kind of peaked with their conventional prowess, their training, their firepower. They actually got their stuff together at just the right time. So they were actually able to get decisive gains. The Tito locked down the border in July. The war was over effectively. I think they announced the ceasefire the first week of October. Really, inside of less than three months, you went from a war where the nationalist forces, the Greek government forces, were effectively damn near defeated conventionally, not even by an insurgency, because that insurgency started to fight conventionally. They got so well supported, supplied, and organized. So these guys were thumping the Greeks again and again and again. And people say, oh, well, they had you know cleared the Peloponnese. Oh, yeah, they did that like five other times. And each time the insurgency was able to you know reseed itself and come back because, again, they had strategic depth. They could go to sanctuary, wait them out, recoup, you know, reinfiltrate and continue the war. And that wears out the Greek national government. The forces, it costs a lot. Well, hey, Joe, I had, sorry, um, going back to Afghanistan, because I'm looking at our time. Uh, gotcha. With, um, I, I mean, there's so many similarities between uh, when the bear went over the mountain, okay? Uh, if you've done a lot of study on that, I'm sure you have. Uh, yep. But I see a lot of similarities. Uh, what similarities would you say would be to the conflict that the Soviets had in the 80s and then ours? Well, I mean, there, there's the, the Soviets in this case, and became the Russians, actually offered a lot of advice and support to the U.S. at the beginning of the war. And, of course, with that arrogance, we denied it. Uh, we probably should have listened uh, because the similarities, uh, you know, were uncanny, actually, even like 10 years in, like, you know, the way they developed the Soviets, uh, their evolution of how they fought and their tactics and aerosol, right. even the location of their operations. 10 years in, guess where they're going after? They're going after Kandahar. Guess where the Americans and NATO were going after, you know, at 10 years in Kandahar. You know, so you see these really eerie similarities where it's like, dude, we could have just jumped to lessons learned and been good. And of course, we were on the other side of that equation. This is what's startling as far as the, just the sheer, if you want to say, incompetence or high level corruption or intrigue. We were on the other side of the border with the Soviets. We were with ISI. We were supporting the Mujahideen. These same characters like Haqqani, Hekmacher, these guys that we were fighting that are now celebrating, or at least Haqqani's son and Hekmacher and these guys are you know, in Kabul right now and running the security for the Taliban, they're still here. Yeah. And these were the guys we armed, trained and equipped. And by we, I mean the CIA and the U S government taxpayer. And so yeah. we knew these entities and we knew the game. We, we devised the strategy. Hey, look, come into Pakistan. We're going to support you, arm you. And all you need to do is keep this war. We're going to keep it on life support and you just keep pricking them because eventually they're just going to wear out. It's going to cost them too much and they're going to lose. And it's going to be a big strategic embarrassment for the Soviet Union. Well, how hard was that to realize and just kind of flip that equation and say, hey, look, well, they already learned their lesson. They're going to do the same thing, probably go into Pakistan, enjoy sanctuary, get foreign support to include, you know, elements of the pack. We'll say ISI, but we'll say like maybe non-state quasi-state element supports in Pakistan, but there's a whole bunch of foreign aid and support and foreign fighters 
coming into Pakistan, into that sanctuary, just like before, to back them, to allow them, in this case, to freely move back across the border and cause havoc inside of Afghanistan. We knew that was the game. We knew it. And yet we never attempted to stop it. And, you know, I mentioned in my book, I, I actually did, you know, work out on the border. I definitely had contact with officers that were working in some form or fashion with border security at the like listed, like actual checkpoints, not actually securing it. And they all said the same thing. Yeah, man, this was great. You know, it was like a magnet for, uh, you know, the insurgents. They, you know, they came after us and guess what? We schwacked them, which fits exactly with what the analysis and the, the study revealed. You know, that's they, it's an affront to their legitimacy. They have to go after it and you schwack them. And it wouldn't have cost that much. I mean, like if you look at like the Israeli border plan uh, per mile, like at least in 2010 dollars, it was about two point two million dollars. And that's like the extreme end of a very technical, sophisticated border security plan. All right. You don't have to go to that level, but let's just take a high end and say like two and a half million dollars per mile. All right. To secure the border in Afghanistan using those numbers. And, you know, we can argue that it may be more or not, but you're talking three point three billion dollars. That is a drop in the bucket. That's not compared to the five point eight trillion dollars that we spent. Well, look at the, yeah. the, the cost versus benefit. I mean, like we spent more than that in two weeks in the war in Iraq. So the cost yeah. of the war in Iraq at its height, we were spending more money than it would have taken to secure the entire border of Afghanistan. I can tell you about USAID programs like women's initiatives where we blew $500 million and weren't able to show any anything for it. Nothing. And I, I think the testimony from the cigar, uh, John Soka, you know, he's done a lot of great work on uncovering corruption in Afghanistan. You know, he shows that it's like we did, we wasted hundreds of millions and billions of dollars and showed nothing for it. But we couldn't come up with, say, five billion to secure the border. Couldn't find it. And there's so many parallels. And like, when, you know, if people are mad because I bring up the woman's rights and the money and it never went there, I would just say that, look, even if we didn't spend a cent during the time that we're in Afghanistan, you know, in the past 20 years on women's rights initiatives, the women in Afghanistan would have been far better off if we had won the war. Yes. Just saying. Yes. You're just saying. Yeah. You know, so you look at that, man, and you look at the cost and it's fiddle. You know what's even funnier and also actually more disturbing? And this is something that actually is not in the book. It's uh it's in a kind of a, a follow-on, a, a a part two that I'm working on right now. But Pakistan is actually implemented its own border security. And they actually approached the United States and said, hey, do you want in on this? We could use some help and some funding. We'll do all the work. We just need a little extra money. So we could have done that on the cheap. And now, granted, I would say we still need to have our own mirror border, but it would have been a hell of a lot better than nothing. If we pitched in with the Pakistanis and said, all right, cool, you're on the same sheet of music we are and supported that. And here's what's really weird. This may be completely coincidental, but at about... I don't know, six months before the Pakistani government announced or the military announced that initiative to secure the border, about six months before the like their command and staff school, their military command and staff college in Pakistan, is I think it's Islamabad, bought a whole bunch of my first edition books. I know that because Amazon and they track who buys and they give you some information on buyers because at the time it was sold on Amazon. And so those books went to Pakistan. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Six months later, they announced a border security initiative. I don't know. Somebody's, it may be coincidence. Some, somebody's, <laughs> somebody's learning from your research. Listen, Joe, I mean, why do people need to read hashtag fail? Are we going back in Afghanistan? It's applicable everywhere else, right? I mean, is it, isn't it really what we need to do is, I mean, Afghanistan's lost. Okay, we might end up being back in there. Let's not make the same mistake if we do have to go again. But, I mean, isn't hashtag fail really a clarion call for the U.S. to pull its head out of its butt? And if we're going to get involved in this stuff, do it right. So, I mean, like I go back and I ask myself, I'm like, why did I, you know, write this book in the first place? And, you know, some people are, you know, snake eating, hardcore war fighters, barrel chested killers. Uh, You know, they're the Achilles of the world. You know, they win battles. And some people are kind of more low profile, more intellectual, more like Odysseus. If I you know, do a you know, historical reference there to the Iliad and the Odyssey, more on the Odysseus side. Odysseus wins wars, doesn't win battles necessarily, he wins wars. And the analogy I'm trying to make is we need to go from the tactical and get our head back into the bigger picture. And when it comes to coin, this is bigger picture. 3TAC24, you know, the coin manual, 
this stuff needs to be overhauled and it needs to be moved when it comes to sanctuary and the primacy of it and border security in all various forms, whether, and, and by the way, like I know we may run long, but this is really important to pull out. I'm glad and you put that out. Uh, sorry, Joe, I want to just stick in there. I'm glad you pointed that out about 324 because I believe uh, border control is has scant treatment in the 324. Oh my gosh. I think we're talking. That's like know, an understatement, right? <laughs> what, what, what is wrong with this? Is this just not sexy? I mean, what what, what is the thing? Why, why, why are you? I don't. You know, if you strategically win wars in the end, quick. I don't know. Maybe people don't make money, and you don't get to you know pass Patriot Acts and things like that. But yeah, the word the word border, I think, is mentioned. I counted twenty two times in the two hundred eighty two pages of uh, at the ten, that version of FM three yeah, tech war. Does it sound too much like guard duty? I mean, <laughs> and, and by the way, the term border was mainly like doctors without borders. It wasn't like actual border security, like yeah. we're talking. Um, but, you know, it, it again, it, it references it in passing. But you see this again and again, where actually, you know, intellectual scholars, academics, uh, policymakers, military members recognize and they'll sit there and tell you, you know, this is really important. And then they'll completely erase that statement and and go the other direction as if it didn't matter. You know, I, I would say that, you know, the vast, vast majority of these counterinsurgency books that I've re uh, read in the last, well, for my entire life, really, but especially in the last 20 years, you know, all that make that same mistake, you know, they, they recognize the problem and then they like just write it off. It's like, it's somebody else's problem. We don't have to do anything about it. And part of that is failing to realize just how critically important it is. Yeah. Um, you know, so 324 needs to be updated. This needs to be a primary piece of it. And border security needs to, you need to really truly understand it in the sense of it could be internal, like Talafar. It does go into Talafar in, in 324, but for the wrong reasons. You know, it talks about it as a success. They build up berms around the city in Iraq, but they failed to miss the point. This was part of that quote ink block strategy, which actually is, it did work in Afghanistan, or sorry, in Iraq, which is important to understand, but it's important to understand why. Iraq, it has like, you know, very, well, you guys know, you have very concentrated populations surrounded by basically uninhabited desert, like nothing. And so you have de facto internal border security there. So you can surround those cities and essentially cut them off, isolate them and clear them. And if you hold it, you want it. That's it. This, the fight's over. Afghanistan is fundamentally different. And this is where Petraeus went really off the rails because he tried to apply one for one without using really any thought. And I, I say that because if he did, he would have recognized that the, what I call rural sprawl of Afghanistan, if you try to surround any village, town or city in Afghanistan, all you're effectively doing is getting surrounded yourself. You know, yeah. Afghanistan lines up with a linear type. Well, you, you have to find that sanctuary, which is Pakistan. And it, yeah, it's a long border, but it's doable and you have to do it. If you don't, you lose. It's that damn simple. Maybe and, uh, you know, uh, 20, 30 years, people will uncover your book and then they'll have a fighting strategy when we go back in. You know, there's a... Uh, you, the, you kind of we say that, up. but it may be true. <laughs> I, I put yeah. a quote in my book, um, and the, to show kind of to emphasize what you just said, this is from the Washington Post. It's a Walter Lippmann post from September 15th of 1963. And he states, you know, this is the Vietnam era for those that maybe are a little sketchy on history or whatever. He says, it is for all practical purposes impossible to win a guerrilla war if there is privileged sanctuary behind the guerrilla fighters. Like, how profound is that? Yeah. If we had listened to, a, essentially, a reporter in 1963, Vietnam would have been very different. Yeah. A lot of these wars would have been very different. So we haven't learned our lessons. We, we kind of, like, again, you know, this may be another podcast, but how we got here and how we missed it, I referenced that blind spot, a part of that was we kind of just got lucky and we dumbed into success, especially with like the island campaigns, the Marine Corps Small World Manual. You know, you're in places like the Dominican Republic or Haiti or the Philippines, even, you know, the British example in, in Malaysia. These areas are naturally the, the, the borders are secure because it's the ocean. So, you know, there's nowhere to go. Exactly. You you don't have a real sanctuary. And then, of course, like in Malaysia, you know, Noggle's eating soup with a knife. I prefer a spoon. But when you have somebody that's ethnically distinct, you know, Chinese population, whatever, from the, the indigenous population, and you're on an island and there's nowhere to go, <laughs> yeah, you're going to get wiped out. That's a bad plan or it's a bad recipe for success if you're an insurgent.
And so we got into these island campaigns where the insurgent had nowhere to fall back, you know, so we really could just simply pacify, you know, the entire island, you know, sweep it and that's it. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. And we never made that logical get or leap from an island to where, you know, hey, look, they can actually go across the border. And if we're not, for whatever political reasons or whatever, not willing to go there and chase them, follow and pursue, yeah. then they have, by default, sanctuary. And that's where they're going to go and set up operations and continue to harass us indefinitely. Yeah. But you cut the border, you put the time on your side, and then the, the clock starts ticking. You know, they you know they wind down. Yeah, that's, the and, um, that's the famous saying, coin only works on islands. I mean, what you're saying is create the island. Yeah. And, and, and that's what, what, that's the causal factor. What does um, how does hashtag fail um, impact U.S. border policy? Well, it, 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 in a whole bunch of ways. I mean, right now we wouldn't be staring at a strategic disaster yeah. and insecurity. Back to that whole thing of did the war succeed or not? Well, I mean, like you have to ask yourself some really hard questions. Go back to two thousand one. You know. If it was so dire, so critical to U.S. national security that we invade a sovereign country and start a war, i.e. Afghanistan, and we had to do this, then how is it safe and okay that now in 2021 we can just drop the mic and walk away and leave the Taliban not just in power, but better armed, better trained, better equipped, better funded, and in control of more of Afghanistan than they were in 2001, and say that's okay. You have a real problem here because either the President Bush at that time lied to America, or we just created and, and committed a huge, stupid, dangerous blunder in Afghanistan. Because you can't have it both ways. Either it's a true national security threat, or the last 21 years was bullshit. And it was treasonous to lie to America about the importance of that, to push Patriot Act, to push surveillance, get sodomized by TSA to go see your grandmother on Christmas. You name it. It's gotten ridiculous. But why? So you can't have it both ways. And people aren't asking these questions. You know, is it is it critical for our national security? Because if it wasn't 2001, it even is more so now. You know, and here's another thing that I find really, you know, intellectually perplexing to outright treasonous. Where's the Zawahiri? Amin al-Zawahiri, the intellectual, ideological inspiration to al-Qaeda. They trumpeted all about the logistician, the financier, Osama bin Laden, and getting him. Okay, you got a big, you know, you got a financier. But the guy that actually inspired the ideology for AQ and the actual leader of AQ is still arguably alive and well. Maybe not well, but probably hanging out in Pakistan as well. That would be my guess. But where is he at? We we got bin Laden. We shut the door and said, we're, you know, game over. We're good. Well, no, no, we're not good. We're not good at all. Because the dude that inspired all those dead Americans is still fucking out there. And so stop lying. You failed. So either the CIA is the most corrupt intelligence organization in the history of this country, or really out there anywhere, or it's the most incompetent. Maybe it's a little of both, but you can't sit there and spin it and say bin Laden was a bad guy. By the way, he was never indicted. He was never charged with a single crime, which a lot of people don't realize. You know, this guy that we spent 20 years, you know, thousands of American lives, hundreds of thousands, you know, worldwide, trillions of dollars, destroyed our rights. I want to hit that again and again because it's important. This guy was never indicted. They never brought charges against Osama bin Laden. I'm not trying to say the guy was a good guy. He wasn't. He wasn't a friend of America. But the thing is, is we made him out to be this huge archetype boogeyman that was so evil and such a threat that we had to do all of this stuff. And then we just ignore the folks that really actually probably are more of a threat, like Zawahiri. Where's he at? Where, who's looking for him? The war ain't over. Not for them. They're still out there. So does that mean we get to hang it up and go home? I don't know. And so we have to ask ourselves those questions. You know, where does it go for U.S. foreign policy? The answer to that is whether the last 21 years has been a treasonous lie or if it was an actual real national security threat, because those things matter. Because if it's one, we got a big problem. If the other, we still got a big problem, but it's internal. Yeah. Hey, Joe, I think we could have like a series of these podcasts. But hey, for our listeners out there, uh, if you don't know, the uh, the book, like we said, is uh, hashtag fail. Uh, why the U.S. lost the war in Afghanistan. 
uh, it was a prescient uh, look at uh, really almost prophetic call about how our strategy was failing and how it was doomed to failure. Uh, and I think this is a call also for us to remain vigilant based off of what you just said. Uh, so for students of war, uh, I know you would enjoy this podcast. You can listen to it probably three or four times to get all the distilled wisdom that Joe has just given us. Uh, I know I would need to do that and go back and, and try to understand everything he's telling us. But absolutely awesome stuff. And I think uh, for those who uh, don't learn from history, as they say, are doomed to repeat it. And uh, may God help us not do that. So, hey, Joe, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been absolute pleasure. Uh, I know that we'll be able to have some time on here again, uh, at least uh, uh, as far as like a series on coin uh, strategies and tactics, stuff like that. So we're looking forward to everything that you have coming down the pike and then uh, the future books that, you know, you're going to have with Blacksmith. Well, there's definitely some questions that need to be asked. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, important answers that need to be honestly revealed and, and, and publicized, really. So I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, you guys are some of the most humble, legit warriors, the Achilles out there um, that I've run into. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. I certainly appreciate you taking the time to hear me out and uh, and and. Honestly, have the you're talking about prescient, uh, the ability to recognize something and the importance of it early, early on before most really anybody else and run with it. I mean, I remember when uh, you called me there, huh? <laughs> and uh, it kind of caught me off guard there. I think kind of out of left field, and I, I even had to check your bona fides. I'm like, is this guy legit? <laughs> and uh, you know, absolutely, <laughs> in every respect, yeah. and some. Um, but the fact that you guys picked up on this, uh, it goes to show that something's working somewhere and it goes to show that there are folks out there in the military that are inquisitive, do realize we have a problem, do want to solve it and aren't so institutionalized. They can't see outside of the, the blinders. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so that gives me hope that going forward, just like you mentioned that we, Unfortunately, the, the, the doing's done in Afghanistan, but we're not destined to repeat this disaster yeah. if we learn our lessons and, and we make good on them. And honestly, and the, you know, the paradigm continues to change. You know, we're, we're moving forward. We don't want to fight the last war. Yeah. Uh, but this is a consistent theme throughout insurgencies writ large, throughout the world, throughout time. Like I said, you know, go back and study them and look and ask yourself if the, the, the insurgent lost, did he have sanctuary? And if the answer is yes, then that's an interesting case study. But the answer is going to be uh, no. That's, you know, they didn't have sanctuary. They got wiped out. Yeah. And when you look at those victories for the counterinsurgents, start looking at it and say, well, did the counterinsurgent remove the sanctuary, whether through border security or other means, you know, internal or external? Did they win? And your answer is going to be yes, yes, yes. And, uh, and you're going to see that consistency and you're going to realize just how critical just how central and just how powerful this simple duh aspect is that's been staring us right in the face yeah. forever. Yeah. And so the lessons can be learned. I hope they're, they are learned. And uh, I really appreciate your time and uh, being here and I look forward to chatting more in the future. We'll definitely be doing that, Joe. Thanks, <laughs> thanks again. Thank you, brother. God bless.